0: Hello, my name is Steven Cram, and welcome to My Apologies. An apology doesn't just mean saying that you're sorry. An apology can also mean giving a reason for something that you believe. For example, if I ask you, why do you believe that In-N-Out is the best fast food restaurant? I'm asking for an apology. On this channel, we will examine various apologies for living a life of faith and virtue. But if I say something that offends you, you have My apologies. Welcome to the fifth episode of our Mere Christianity series. Today, we're answering the question, can a tree be good or evil? Along with it, we'll also talk about in general, what does it mean to be good? First, we'll look at goodness in inanimate objects like trees and rocks and motorcycles, and then we'll compare it with living things like dogs or mice or humans. What does it look like for them to be good? Next, we'll talk about what the Bible means when it says, no one is good. What does that mean? And finally, we'll answer the question, why should we be good? We've got a lot of ground to cover today, so let's get started. In Mere Christianity, Book 1, Chapter 3, Lewis starts talking about stones and trees. It may seem random at first, but he's using them as examples to draw a distinction between saying a tree is good and saying a human is good. He writes, If you take a thing like a stone or a tree, it is what it is, and there seems no sense in saying it ought to be otherwise. Of course, you might say a stone is the wrong shape if you wanted to use it for a rockery, which, on a side note, I learned is like a rock bed or a rock garden. Anyway, or that a tree is bad because it does not give you as much shade as you expected. But all you mean is that a stone or a tree does not happen to be convenient for some purpose of your own. You are not, except as a joke, blaming them for that. If you call a stone good or bad, you're referring to its usefulness or lack of usefulness you aren't saying that the stone is morally bad or bad in some ultimate sense and why is that because it only has been shaped by nature and nature's laws it had no choice in the matter given the circumstances it could not have been otherwise therefore really by bad you mean not useful or inconvenient it's almost like when you're walking through your home late at night and you catch just your pinky toe on the coffee table is there any worse pain in this world If you're anything like me, you'll grab hold of your foot as you jump up and down, as if that does anything, like you're making some kind of makeshift cast for your toe, and you'll say something like, stupid table, and mumble to yourself as you leave the room. What you don't mean is that the table is actually stupid, and that it should have known better. What you mean is that the coffee table is existing exactly where you put it, but it's now inconvenient to you. If anyone is stupid, it's the person stubbing their toe on it. So that's an example of a bad object, To give an example of a good object, I used to camp a lot when I was a kid. My family valued camping a ton, and when I got a little older, I actually joined the Boy Scouts, so a lot of camping experience happened in my lifetime. When I was tromping through the woods with friends, I would regularly be in search for what I would call a good stick. What I didn't mean was a stick that had made good life decisions, or a stick that was going to be kind to me in some way. What I meant was a stick that looked and felt approximately like a sword, because that's the game we were playing. If we were going to run around the woods together and pretend we were great medieval warriors, I needed a sword to swing at the imaginary villain, or to use to slay the dragon. I was looking for a stick that was useful to me. Lewis explains, what we, from our point of view, call a bad tree, is obeying the laws of its nature, the laws that shaped it, just as much as a good one In other words, whether or not you decide that a stick is good or bad is simply a matter of taste. The tree that you're looking at has perfectly obeyed the laws of nature that apply to it. If it has ample shade to rest underneath, that was the result of the laws of nature making it grow big and strong. It couldn't have done otherwise. If it is a scrawny little thing, like you might find in a desert maybe, that too is the result of it perfectly obeying the laws of nature. A tree cannot disobey these laws and be bad in that sense of being disobedient. It can only be good or bad based on how useful you find it to be. Lewis continues by saying, When you say that falling stones always obey the law of gravitation, is not this much the same as saying that the law only means what stones always do? You do not really think that when a stone is let go, it suddenly remembers that it is under orders to fall to the ground. You only mean that, in fact, it does fall. The laws of nature, as applied to stones or trees, may only mean what nature does. In other words, what Lewis is observing is that when we see a stone fall to the ground, we may call this the law of gravity, but that law is just a description of what always happens. The law of gravity means that objects will always fall toward the earth. Everyone knows that. It's not a law, though, in the sense that it defines what a rock should do. Like, for example, traffic laws. Traffic laws define who should turn, when, and how fast you should be able to go, but they can be disobeyed. The law of gravity isn't like that. It doesn't describe what a rock should do. It describes what a rock will do when you drop it. We're not in some kind of cartoon wily Coyote world where rocks just hover in midair long enough for the roadrunner to pass safely underneath before it decides to fall. The laws of nature apply to inanimate objects, and they must be obeyed trees have no choice in that matter. That's why there's no use in calling a tree morally good or morally bad. But, Lewis says, if you turn to the law of human nature, it is a different matter. That law certainly doesn't mean what human beings in fact do. For as I said before, and here he's referencing what we've talked about in previous episodes, many of them do not obey this law at all, and none of them obey it completely. And then he says, in other words, When you are dealing with humans, something else comes in and above the actual facts. You have the facts, which is how men do behave, and you also have something else, which is how they ought to behave. For inanimate objects, the laws of nature acting upon them is simply a way to describe what they will do. But for human beings, there is a difference between how they do behave and how they should behave. To expand on this, Lewis says, Now this is really so peculiar that one is tempted to try to explain it away. For instance, we might try to make out that when you say a man ought to act as he does, you only mean the same as when you say a stone is the wrong shape. Namely, that what he is doing happens to be inconvenient to you, but that is simply untrue. A man occupying the corner seat in the train because he got there first, and a man who slipped into it while my back was turned and removed my bag, are both equally inconvenient. But I blame the second man, and I do not blame the first. I am not angry except for perhaps a moment before I come to my senses, with a man who trips me up by accident. I am angry with a man who tries to trip me up, even if he does not succeed. Yet the first has hurt me, and the second has not at all. Sometimes, the behavior which I call bad is not inconvenient to me at all, but the opposite. In war, each side may find a traitor on the other side very useful. But though they use him and pay him, they regard him as human vermin. So you cannot say that what we call decent behavior in others is simply the behavior that happens to be useful to us. And as for decent behavior in ourselves, I suppose it is pretty obvious that it does not mean the behavior that pays. It means things like being content with 30 shillings when you might have got 3 pounds, doing schoolwork honestly when it would be easy to cheat, leaving a girl alone when you would rather like to make love to her, staying in dangerous places when you would rather go somewhere safer, keeping promises you would rather not keep and telling the truth even when it makes you look a fool. So Lewis is saying we may be tempted to think that human goodness is just like tree goodness, simply a matter of personal convenience. But then he describes several situations that prove this is not the case. Specifically, for me, the example of being tripped up helped me understand it a ton. You would blame a person for trying to trip you, even if he doesn't succeed. But you wouldn't blame a person who tripped you on accident because they didn't mean to. The person here who actually hurt you, the one who didn't mean to, is not the one you get mad at. You get mad at the person who tried to, even if they don't succeed. This just shows how it's it's not quite the same. It's not quite so simple as saying that you've been inconvenienced, and that is what makes behavior bad. If goodness in humans was just a matter of convenience, then this situation of the tripping would be the opposite. You would be mad at the person who actually tripped you, and you wouldn't be mad at the person who tried but failed. So from this, we learn that there are two distinct ways in which good can be used. You have good for inanimate objects, which really just means useful. And you have good, which means morally upright, which applies to people. And perhaps to a degree, you could also apply this to animals and other living beings like that. Now, the reason I say this, the part about it being applied to animals is a bit of a side note, but it's one that is related to this topic and that I find incredibly interesting. I thought I would add it in here. Lewis has a section a little bit later in book 2 chapter 3 of Mere Christianity where he's talking about free will and the reason that evil exists. Here's a little sneak peek into future topics. But anyway, as part of the discussion he says, the better stuff a creature is made of, the cleverer and s- <laughs> that's such a weird word, the cleverer and stronger and freer it is, the better it will be if it goes right, but also the worse it will be if it goes wrong. A cow cannot be very good or very bad. A dog Can be both better and worse. A child, better and worse still. An ordinary man, still more so. A man of genius, still more so. A superhuman spirit, best or worst of all. Isn't that cool? I don't know if you agree or not, but I found this to be a fascinating observation. Take, for example, a slug. This sort of being has such low capacity, or as Lewis might say, it's made of such low quality stuff, that it's hardly more capable of being morally good than a pebble. It's basically inanimate. But it's not, it's alive. Now consider a dog. That's several steps up. You you could have a good dog or you could have a bad dog. And by that, you don't just mean that the animal is convenient or inconvenient or useful or or not useful. But there's an actual capacity for goodness or cruelty within that animal. You have dogs that grow in friendships with their owners and even save them from peril. Like they might run into a house fire and drag out their owner at their own risk. But on the other end, you have dogs that can be quite cruel harming or mutilating others. Then humans, of course, are steps up further, and they have a great capacity for both good and for evil, as you could see across the span of history. And then finally, Lewis takes it a step even further to superhuman spirits, which would be like angels or Satan, for that matter, who have an even greater capacity for good or evil than even humans do. So that's more of a side note, but I just thought it was really interesting, so I threw it in there. With all this talk of being good, if you're a Christian, you may have alarm bells ringing in your mind at this point. You might ask, what about those Bible verses that seem to say humans can't be good? Well, let's take a look at them. First, we have Romans 3 verses 10 through 12, which says, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. It's very savage. And then we have Mark 10:18, in which Jesus Christ himself says, No one is good except God alone. And these seem pretty stark and explicit that no one is good. No one does good stuff. What do they actually mean? What these verses point to is a doctrine which is called original sin. Reading from a Gospel Coalition article by Richard Phillips. I'll have it in the show notes. He says, Original sin is a term that defines the nature of mankind's sinful condition because of Adam's fall. It teaches that all people are corrupted by Adam's sin through natural generation, meaning having kids, by which, together with Adam's imputed condemnation, we all enter into the world guilty before God. Original sin shows that we sin because we are sinners. Entering this world with a corrupt nature and without hope apart from the saving grace of God, In the gospel. Essentially, we enter the world as broken creatures. My first son is about to be born and we couldn't be more excited. He's coming any day now, actually. By the time this podcast goes live, he'll actually probably have been born. My wife and I are getting everything ready and trying to mentally prep for a frantic drive to the hospital. And when he comes, I recognize that he's not actually going to be a perfect little angel. And I'm not just talking about how I know babies scream and cry and poop. I mean, from infancy, Our hearts are not inclined to love God. We want our own way, not God's way. And this has been the case for every human being born from Adam on. We enter the world with this corrupt nature, without hope, like it says, apart from the saving grace, the free gift of God. This is what these verses point to when it says, there is no one who does good, and no one is good but God. It's pointing to the the bigger reality of goodness. We're not good like God is good. We're sinful by nature. God, however, is goodness itself. This is a little bit challenging, a little bit philosophical, but I'll try to break it down. God isn't good simply as a description. It's not just that we see how God acts and we call him good for that reason. He is good in his essence. Kind of like the same way you might say, I am human. It's not just the way I act or a character trait I have. It's actually who I am in essence. It's essential to my very being. I am human. And this has been kind of a tough concept for me to wrap my brain around, this idea of God being Goodness. And so I've got an analogy for us to use. I'm warning you, it's going to be silly. This is my official silly warning. Some people may not appreciate this for a variety of reasons, but here we go. Are you a Swifty? Do you know any major Swifties? If you don't know what that is, a Swifty is a person who is a major fan of the famous singer Taylor Swift. They tend to know all the lyrics to her songs, they follow her on social media, and they know all kinds of creepy trivia about her. Way more than any human being should know about another human that they don't actually know. Think about that for a minute. You can tell how big a Swifty someone is by how much they know about Taylor Swift and how much Taylor has impacted their life. Their Swiftiness is derived from Taylor Swift. Taylor Swift is the essence of Swiftiness. No one else can be her as much as they may want to, but you can learn about her and emulate her and have her affect your life. And thus you may be called a Swifty or you may have Swiftiness and thus be Swifty. I told you that was going to be silly, but when I say that Taylor Swift is the essence of Swiftiness, because it's literally who she is, that's like what I mean by saying that God is good. All goodness flows from him, is derived from him. I'm sure you can break the analogy down in a ton of ways, but hopefully that's fun and helpful at the same time. If I've committed any heresy with that example, either towards the God of the Bible or the secular deity of pop, I started a locals page. So if you want to rebuke me, click the link in the description, join, and you can rebuke me there. Please do, actually. I'd love to hear from you. So back to the point. If we all have this original sin, can anyone be good then? Of course, we know from experience. The answer is yes. We all know from our personal lives that people can do good things this is due to what some theologians call common grace. A great example of this comes from Sam Storms, who has the perfect name for a weatherman incidentally, but he's actually the pastor of Bridgeway Church in Oklahoma City. He explains, common grace as an expression of the goodness of God is every favor falling short of salvation, which this undeserving and sin-cursed world enjoys at the hand of God. This includes the delay of wrath, the mitigation of our sin natures, natural events that lead to prosperity, and all gifts that humans use and enjoy naturally. This common grace we're talking about includes all the gifts God gives to us, excluding salvation. It's all the gifts given to common people, whether or not they believe in Jesus. All the little joys in life, the beauty of nature, and the moral law by which we're able to discern that which is good and that which is evil, to some extent. In the book of Romans chapter 2, Paul says, When Gentiles meaning non-believers, who don't have the law, do by nature what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show that what the law requires is written on their hearts. This is in reference to the moral law that we've been talking about for the past few episodes. Paul, the apostle, is admitting that even non-believers can follow the moral law because it's written on their hearts, given to them by common grace, not that they can merit salvation by their moral actions, Nor can they follow it perfectly, of course, no one can, but they can do moral actions because the moral law is observable within all of us, written on our hearts, as Paul says. So cool. So, if you remember from our introduction, we have one more question to cover today. That is, why should we be good? If you're a Christian, you hopefully know that the Bible says we can be forgiven our sins, but at the same time, we should stop sinning. Well, if we can be forgiven, why should we be good? What's the point? There are two answers to this that come from the very earliest years of the church. One answer is from Paul's letter to the Romans. The other answer is from a church leader from the first century in Rome named Clement. He would have been leading the church not too long after Peter and Paul died. So let's start with scripture, the book of Romans chapter 6. In it, Paul says, "'What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? By no means.'" Paul is asking, since we're saved by this grace of God, apart from our own merit, why would we try to act good in the first place? The more we sin, the more God's grace covers it, right? But he continues, we are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the father, we too may live a new life. His answer to why we should do good is simply that we are new people now. In the baptism we have as believers, we are buried with Christ. The old sinful stain we inherited from Adam is dead, and we are made new. If we're a new kind of human, we should act like it. Now, this is a good answer. Obviously, it's got to be good. It's in the Bible. It's Paul, and one which I would love for you to meditate on after finishing this podcast. But I recently found a second answer from Clement It's related, it's not completely different, but it actually gave me a lot of joy when I read it, and so I wanted to share that with you as well. Clement, as I said, was the bishop of Rome from 88 AD to 99 AD. He wrote this letter to the church at Corinth, because apparently Paul's two letters that made it into the Bible weren't enough, and they needed some more rebuking. For real, Corinth, they gotta get together. Anyway, in the 33rd chapter of his book, Clement writes something that is very similar to what Paul writes in Romans, but he takes a slightly different direction. He writes... What shall we do then, brothers? Shall we become slothful in well-doing and cease from the practice of love? God forbid that any such course should be followed by us, but rather let us hasten with all energy and readiness of mind to perform every good work. This is basically the same question that Paul asked. Why should we carry on doing good works? I'll warn you, this is a bit of a long quote coming up, but stick with me here. I promise that it's worth it. He answers, For the Creator and Lord of all Himself rejoices in His works. For by his infinitely great power, he established the heavens, and by his incomprehensible wisdom, he adorned them. He also divided the earth from the water which surrounds it and fixed it upon the immovable foundation of his own will. The animals also which are upon it, he commanded by his own words into existence. So likewise, when he had, when he had formed the sea and the living creatures which are in it, he enclosed them with proper bounds by his own power. Above all, with his holy and undefiled hands, he formed man, the most excellent of his creatures, and truly great through the understanding given him, the express likeness of his own image. For thus says God, Let us make man in our image and after our likeness. So God made man, male and female he created them. Having thus finished all these things, he approved them and blessed them and said, Increase and multiply. We see then, How all righteous men have been adorned with good works, and how the Lord himself, adorning himself with his works, rejoiced. Having therefore such an example, let us without delay agree to his will, and let us work the work of righteousness with our whole strength. Clement explains here in beautiful detail how God rejoices at his own works. He paints this mental image of God as a master craftsman forming all of creation into a glorious stage and then finally creating humanity to bless and display his image and likeness. This is why we should do our own good works, he says, because we have so great an example to follow. Why should we pursue goodness and right action? Because we want to be like our father. We want, as little children, we want to be like our dad. Man. Man. That just hits me. I've been reflecting on this a lot lately. Maybe it's because I'm about to become a dad that this hits different for me, but I'm planning on continuing spending time meditating on this idea. And I want to encourage you to join in that meditation with me. Open up Romans 6 or look into Clement chapter 33. I'll add a link in the show notes if you want to check it out. Read over these passages during your time with God or your time in prayer and, and let what they say sink in. I mentioned earlier in the episode that I started a locals page, which is basically an online community. It's totally free to join, but you can also elect to support the podcast if you'd like to. I'll be there, so if you decide to meditate on these passages during your time with the Lord, or if you find them impactful yourself, I would love to hear from you. I'd love to hear your thoughts. I'd love to hear what's going on as you process these things. To wrap up today, let's look back at what we've talked about. We've looked at trees. We've looked at humans. We've looked at dogs. We've looked at the verses that say no one is good. And finally, we examined a few reasons why we should be good. If you enjoyed this episode and you haven't subscribed yet, please consider doing so. Share this episode with a friend and leave a five-star review. I know it's just a couple of easy clicks for you, but it makes a huge difference for us by helping us get the word out. Until next time, my name is Stephen Cram, and this is My Apologies.